Hello humans, hello humans, another one of these, uh, it's December 29, it's uh, getting a little afternoon, and we're off in the vehicle again, on one of these long drives into town to get some stuff done, not shopping this time, meetings, anyway, um, so let's talk about culture and technology and so we're technical beings a lot of people like myself have a uh, penchant a an attitude of um, liking and respect for technology and, and we're fascinated by it it's intriguing to us we want to investigate it play with it etc right uh, such as we see with the uh, video game world, all of this kind of thing. Uh, anyway, um, there's a saying uh, within the anthropological world that uh, cultures don't survive first contact with a superior culture. And really, it, that's not a true statement in the sense that the... Um, uh, the people survive and and they still keep doing things it's just that absent the isolation once they've been contacted by a technically superior culture uh, they become subsumed because of the uh, inclination for uh, us human guys to want technology and so this is how the cargo cults originated right uh, the American uh, small cargo planes would land on these airstrips that had been built um, uh, at great expense and a great deal of trouble on all these islands throughout the South Pacific, uh, primarily. And um, uh, the planes would land, and they didn't want trouble with the natives, so they would bribe them, basically, with our technology. And then when the, and the cargo planes were just there to ferry... Uh, war material, and as the war um, uh, evolved and shifted and changed, uh, they became, at some point, they became um, less necessary, and we stopped having these cargo flights go around. You know, we moved people off the islands in terms of our military forces. They no longer needed to be uh, resupplied, etc. And so the natives are basically standing around saying, hey, what the fuck, dude? You know, why don't we get any more of this shiny stuff? When are these bird men coming back, right? These men that fly through the sky, the gods that come from above. Because they were truly thinking of them that way. Many of the tribes in like Papua New Guinea and areas around there indeed thought of these people and labeled them with words that we would think of as meaning gods. Um, you know, minor deity kind of thing, right? And so this is exactly what happened with uh, all the Essene tribes, the uh, Yemeni tribes, uh, the 12 tribes of people in, well, all over. So it's not just restricted to the um, Judea, Judeans and the, um, uh, these 12 Yemeni tribes that, that are uh, featured in the Bible. We see that this same stuff happens in um, the ancient writings in Sumeria. Now, bear in mind, the Sumerians had a uh, come up with a very interesting form of writing. Okay, all right. So uh, let's diverge for a second, and we'll we'll say that um, 
it's difficult to read. Reading is a technology. Uh, it is a technology that requires that you control uh, these very small muscles uh, that move your eyes back and forth. These small muscles fall into two categories, the saccadic muscles and the medial muscles. Both of them require uh, a lot of training in order to effectively allow you to read. And so reading is not, um, by me anyway, assumed to be a, an easy, natural, native things for humans. Uh, I assume it's a difficult technology for almost all humans to uh, embrace and um, become familiar with, and many people never really become comfortable with it. And a lot of that has to do with the eye movements. Okay, so now some languages are better at reading, uh, better for reading, for speed and for comprehension than other languages. And so we find that languages that are vertical, uh, such as uh, uh, Chinese, Japanese, that are primarily written in a vertical form, some uh, uh, ancillary Hindu texts are this way, uh, we see some uh, Tibetan texts this way, but those, those languages are difficult to read uh, from. So in reading English or anything written in the uh, uh, Romanized alphabet, <coughs> you know, A, B, C, D, etc., we actually don't even look at the bottom half of the word. Our eyes scan the top half of the word. And this is why you make errors in using this technology. Right? Your eye scans across the top of the word, it's trying to move as fast as it can and still take in the entire structure of the word. So basically you're reading the word in whole rather than as letters. And so your mind has a search feature and that search feature will instantly, your linguistic feature of your brain will instantly try and instantly try and match as soon as you start reading. And so it'll, it'll try matching uh, words. Uh, that are, and it'll try matching in the first few uh, milliseconds of the sweep of that word. So basically, if you're reading a long word, your brain is trying to figure it out as to what that word might be so that it can, can put a tick mark in there and say success and you can go on to the next word as soon as it starts seeing that upper profile. Uh, let's note that Sanskrit, you read along the bottom. You, you ignore the top half of the word. And that's why in Sanskrit it looks funny to us because the top half of, the, of all the words are basically flat lines that connect what we would think the, the letters, but all of the letters in Sanskrit are seen from the bottom. And so it's a different kind of reading technology. Uh, comprehension is actually uh, better with Sanskrit, but uh, when you read it, but the um, uh, speed is slower than with the Romanized alphabet. So the Roman alphabet is so far one of the best reading technology alphabets we've come up with. Now, let us note that such things as uh, Hebrew, um, Aramaic, Akkadic, um, all of those that are based fundamentally on Hebrew uh, letter shapes, including Greek and Russian, okay, those are derivatives of um, Hebraic uh, lettering, all right? And, and they are difficult to read. Not only are they difficult to read, they're also difficult to write rapidly because of the nature of the formation of the letters, uh, which they're easy to read uh, in um, 
a studied manner in the sense that if you see a big inscription written in Greek on a statue, it's easier to read than trying to read uh, uh, Greek in a, in a book just because of the nature of the, of the letters. And we're not talking, uh, you know, hugely um, debilitating to read Greek. It's not like people read Greek half as fast as they read English, but there are a lot of people that will, uh, native Greek speakers, that will never be able to read as rapidly as people that are native uh, in reading in a Romanized alphabet, simply because of the nature of the technology that's encompassed in that alphabet itself. So, now getting back to um, the Sumerians. Right, so the Sumerians invented or were given, that's probably the case, they were given, a very interesting um, letter technology that we call cuneiform. Okay, and these are made uh, with uh, little triangular shaped indentations in uh, stone, clay, usually clay tablets is how they wrote uh, them, but they also did these things in stone. And each letter uh, in their alphabet is formed out of a series of little tiny triangles. And so you might have uh, one letter that's got three triangles arranged in a particular way, uh, another that's got five, uh, some that have six or seven, but basically they're all little triangles that are arranged uh, in various different patterns very close to each other. And so we might think of cuneiform in this same way as with uh, Roman, uh, Roman alphabet, in that we make, say, the letter A is formed by the relationship of all these little tiny straight lines. And if we were just to simply replace all of the straight lines in, uh, in the letter A with these little triangular shapes, we would still be able to, uh, Roman alphabet readers, we'd still be able to see it as an A we'd still be able to read it as an A. And it in no way would impact our ability to read rapidly with letters constructed that way. However, um, they did not accommodate any uh, curved. So they, they did not have cursive writing. They didn't have um, handwriting per se as we would understand it, okay? And so there was no printing per se. Uh, like hand printing, you know, where you would print the letters out on a sheet of paper. Um, it appears as though cuneiform is in fact a technical um, data delivery system. Okay, so the Sumerians using cuneiform uh, may have been using a alphabetic system that was uh, originated for and was designed for computers such as we have now. And this is because the nature of the cuneiform text is such that it um, is, uh, it's basically digitized in the sense of um, it would slot right in to our approach here of um, multi-byte languages and the whole thing and we could just slot it right into ASCII with no problem. It's even easier for um, software to decode this, to pick this out, even easier for software to do it than uh, any of the other uh, alphabets that we have now that used curved letters. Curved letters like, you know, B, G, etc. Uh, take more, slightly more clock cycles to decode than um, 
uh, cuneiform wood simply because of the way that the cuneiform is structured. So the Sumerians had a really, really, really good uh, writing technology and they wrote a lot of stuff. And in their writings, which we mainly ignore, which the, all of the Hebraic peoples, anybody that spoke Hebrew, um, was uh, concurrent to uh, the tail end of the Sumerians, and much of the Hebrew took Sumerian um, stories and so on, right? Like Gilgamesh, all of these kind of things. Um, these ancient, um, quote, mythical tales of the gods that came down from the sky. Now, in the cuneiform Sumerian uh, texts, in their literature, they, they only refer to these gods with a little g and an s, so they only refer to them as plural, and they always, when they're, when they're uh, factually titling these uh, people, they say they are beings from the sky, that beings that came down from space. And there are several uh, people that are translating uh, cuneiform that are bitching and moaning about some of the earlier translations, right? And so we find, like Sitchin, with his translation. He never did any translation accurately. The text that he uh, said he translated, you can go and see him at the University of Chicago. Uh, a couple of other universities, they've got them uh, digitized and retranslated by the machine. And none of Sitchin's Planet X bullshit shows up in any of the texts that he said it actually did. So he was basically lying. He, he would just take some Sumerian cuneiform and say, I just translated this, and here's what it says. And he has no flipping clue. And that's how we end up with the Planet X stuff and all of this kind of crap, right? Is this um, uh, disinformation that's going into it. Anyway, so cuneiform is unique. It appears to be a uh, machine uh, way of encoding data and uh, getting data in and out very rapidly. When the Sumerians uh, did write in the cuneiform, they had specialized people that were trained in it, the, the scribes that did all of their um, writing for them. These people also, in both uh, Akkadian uh, history and Sumerian history, the scribes are also your accountants because uh, numbers and uh, letters are so um, uh, inextricably linked, right? So they're, they're uh, just part and parcel of the same understanding. And so your accountant is also your scribe. Anyway, the, um, the technology of that was very likely given to the Sumerians. And they adapted, and so they made pencil points that had these, you know, little sticks, actually, that had specialized forms of these little triangles on them. And they would just press the triangles down into the wet clay in order to make their... Um, their writings. Something you need to know is that you don't just stab the clay with your your little stick. You um, uh, th these clay tablets, in order to, that the impression might be clean and so forth, were were covered over with a mat of um, what we might think of as like um, uh, woven leaves. Right? It was sort of a, a quasi paper. It was a fiber that was smashed out really flat, and they would put it over to the top of the clay, then they would press in all the letterings and stuff to make what they want to write what they wanted to say. And then they, uh, uh, they'd let it dry out, harden up. And then the, the fibers on the surface would be, uh, sanded off with just a very light sanding. And you're left with a very clean, 
uh, hardened clay um, set of inscriptions. And so we've got a bunch of this. Now, we don't have anything near like what they produced. There's, um, there was a ziggurat, okay? A ziggurat's a funny-shaped uh, kind of a pyramid. There was one of these ziggurats in the upper regions of what we think of as Sumeria. And um, this ziggurat uh, was broken into and collapsed uh, during the Iraq War. And when it collapsed, I don't know if it was bombed. I don't know the circumstances. I was just shown two photos uh, by a guy that uh, was over there. Uh, he was um, a contractor to the military. I know the fellow personally. Uh, I, I actually studied Aikido with him. He's a sansei. Um, there were several Aikido sanseis that went over as part of this uh, effort in, you know, calming the Iraqi population or whatever. I don't know what they what they termed it, but these were people that were over there practicing the art of peace to try and keep everybody calm and reduce the amount of strife and so on. So there were, it was an, it was an effort. I know several of these uh, Aikido black belts that went over there. One of these guys was near this ziggurat, whatever the conditions were, I'll actually have to send him an email and ask. Uh, been a long time now. Um, and uh, he sent me two pictures. And inside the ziggurat, uh, which is just basically a mass of bricks that's in you know, with very few voids, really. It's not like they're hollow. But still, inside this one were some fairly large chambers that had been filled at some point uh, with writings, with clay tablets. And the conditions were such that they were preserved up until the Iraq War is the assumption. We don't know that for sure. But at that point, they were destroyed um, by their exposure to the air, by, you know, being bombed or chemicals or whatever. But the, the two pictures show very massive spaces, like maybe maybe 40 or 50 feet high, uh, these two voids. I don't think you'd really call them rooms, per se. They weren't, like, finished, you know. Uh, uh, so it was just sort of like uh, seeing the inside of a house with just the studs and things, right? It wasn't finished at all. Uh, and they were, they were filled with all these crumbled up, broken up clay tablets, many of which had been reduced to near dust, you know, just piles of, of sand, basically. Uh, so anyway, though, but so there were massive storehouses of written material in cuneiform text, some of which we do have, uh, much of which we've lost, and we have no idea of how much has been lost, right? Because we, it was <laughs> that civilization has ended, and we just don't don't have it. But civilization for the Sumerians, um, as part of the Bronze Age, uh, they were they were there six thousand years ago, or six thousand, excuse me, six thousand. About 8,000 years, so 6,000 uh, B.C. Uh, was when the, the city was uh, existent. We don't know when it was built, but when the, the uh, ziggurat was near. Anyway, so cuneiform, uh, in my opinion, is very likely a, um, an adaptation of a digital form of uh, information storage and retrieval. Um, so, uh, technology is really interesting in that way, and we get to these splits, right? So we're getting into a split in our technology as we go along. So right now, um, in some states, you have to have a special um, uh, thing on your driver's license to allow you to drive a stick shift, because most of the kids don't know about that technology. So we've had a big technological shift that way. Uh, you can get these technological shifts such that you could could hypothesize 
a situation where uh, you had a society that, you know, had like mother weffers involved and they get all woke and their whole social order collapses and they don't know how to make computers anymore. And after a while, all their computers die, but all of their reading was entirely mechanical and no one can read because the computers did it for them. And the computers used to read out loud to them. And now the computers aren't there and none of the people can read the digital form of the text, even if they could print it out. So, so these splits can cause you to become separated from your technological past. And, and that's happened to humanity over and over again. We get such splits, such uh, separations from isolation from our uh, previous behavior patterns, uh, frequently showing up here in, uh, on this planet due to these contact issues with, uh, uh, you know, quote, superior civilizations. And really, it's, it's not a superior culture, it's not a superior civilization, it's just a, a uh, culture and a, and a uh, uh, civilization that has more technology, and the technology is superior and is attractive to the humans. Basically, I think, because we're lazy and technology does shit for us. Anyway, so, um, this is like what happened to the cargo cults. So, the, the tribes on the islands in the South Pacific that were the, um, the worshippers in the cargo cults, their culture did not survive contact with the superior technology, and they don't give a shit about our culture. They don't find necessarily anything of real value in our culture other than the technology, and that's what they miss, which they demonstrate by coming up with rituals to try and entice the uh, cargo planes to come back and give them a bunch of free shit. And that went on for a number of years. I mean, there were reports in the 50s of um, tribes in the South Pacific that were still doing cargo cult activity where they would gather once a month or whatever on a, on a you know, the full moon or something and, uh, and haul the uh, replica plane made out of bamboo, set it out on the landing field, and everybody get around and dance trying to entice the gods to come down and give them some more shit. Uh, and that went on, so, you know, that was um, 10 years after the end of World War II. It persisted that long. And so this is a, a, a very deep and um, uh, innate drive in humans to seek for this kind of thing with technology. Why that should be is, you know, we can debate about that and discuss that and so on. But it appears to be um, prima facie uh, evident that it does exist and it does drive us to some extent. And so, uh, you know, we see that now where uh, superior technology dominates and the people want it, and they will evolve their culture to deal with it once they can get their hands on it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their culture uh, doesn't survive. It just meant, means that, you know, it is evolved, it's altered, it's changed. And that there's really no reason for that culture to stay static and to stay that way um, absent the contact. So it's not, so what I'm saying is uh, the whole idea of the noble savage, you know, that kind of thing, right? That's a, um, uh, I don't see anything of value in attempting to preserve uh, limited human potential life in the sense that uh, the Native Americans uh, had a life here that was harsh. Uh, it's estimated that the average age of death for uh, North American 
people prior to the, um, you know, or for the indigenous population that the academicians say derived from the Clovis people, the average age of death was 28. And you had some long-lived individuals, but the a lot of people died before they were 28 just due to the conditions. You know, one bump in a... Um, uh, a hunt with a uh, with a buffalo and all your ribs are crushed and your lung collapses and you die because there's simply no technology to remediate mistakes and a lot of technology goes to uh, keeping humans out of trouble by reducing our potential to, to have to live with our mistakes right to, to eliminate as many of these as we possibly can so uh, I'm of the opinion that all of our human culture now, it's, uh, it's in our, in our, this is the consensus in uh, Der Scheisberg, uh, Ein Enzweit, uh, both uh, one and two, is that our history is such that we are not able to separate um, humans prior to uh, the introduction of technologies. And it gets really interesting the further back you go. Okay, so I'm having, I've had big battles with um, uh, ecologists and evolutionists uh, because I state that humans cannot, humans are not native to this planet, right? And if humans were native to this planet, we would have long claws, fur, we wouldn't need fire, we could eat all kinds of stuff, and uh, we wouldn't, wouldn't uh, die from exposure and cold and all this kind of thing. We wouldn't need the technology of clothing, fire, and shelter. Animals don't. We do. And, and this is a big glaring thing. And humans cannot survive, could not have survived, as a nascent uh, chimpanzee-like creature that was losing its hair. And by the way, we've never had... I actually had an evolutionist tell me that it was because they got were moving into northern climates and they started getting cold that these chimpanzee-like critters started wearing clothing and that caused their hair to fall out. And it's like, dude, are you really that stupid? I wear clothing all my life. You ought to see the hair on my back, right? It is not falling out. Uh, so... Uh, and I'm bald, and I wear a hat because I'm bald. I'm not bald because I wore a hat. So, um, you know, so a lot of the academicians' uh, assertions are, are non-thinking horseshit that they just want you to accept and get beyond so that they don't have to deal with the real questions that they are not able to answer, um, especially relative to technology. So... In my opinion, like I say, humans require technology to be on this planet. We're not native to this planet. We were introduced one way or another, and uh, here we are now. And I'm just involved with a group of people that want to figure out as, as much as may be possible, uh, you know, what the fuck happened? How did we get here? Uh, what is something closer to our real history? And it's really muddy, the history. I mean, it's uh, distorted by... Uh, the removal of things like Tartaria, all of the structures in North America, um, you know, the last ice age, all of this kind of stuff. In that sense, we're a species with amnesia. It's also mucked up by people deliberately altering timelines and putting in uh, thousands of years that didn't really even exist there, uh, insofar as we can actually see. So there, if you go and look in history, you find out that there's what they call the king lists, right? So-and-so ruled this part of Samaria from 
this point to this point. And sometimes they, they would have like um, uh, astrological indicators you could actually get uh, a fairly good date approximation uh, from. But these king lists were repetitious. So you might have eh, 30 or 40 kings in there that they just change the name and repeat them over and over and over and over again and don't change any of the other uh, particulars such that if you really examine it, you see that they're just inflating it. They're just trying to say, our civilization is so old and ancient, we're so great, and that our king list is, you know, thousands of kings long. Um, and, it, and it's bullshit. So people have been screwing with the history for as long as we've had history for their reasons, and it's just an interesting little, in my opinion, um, thing to examine and, and try and figure out, you know, what what's going on with it. So, um, I'm of the opinion that as we go through this um, uh, civilization degradation period that we're in now, uh, certain things will occur... Uh, the mother weffers are losing now, uh, they'll lose big time, and we will break open a lot of the areas that the mother weffers have had hidden from us, especially relative to our history. Now, we don't know what they've destroyed, what they've kept, or, or not, so we don't know what we're going to be um, able to, to locate, but we do know that just the the mere fact that we're going to get into and examine our history is going to bring up all of this stuff, and it's going to be a very hellacious, it'll be a very interesting time for many children to go to school, but it's going to be a very difficult time for uh, people to actually come up with some kind of um, a solid uh, structure for our narradigm, uh, for the paradigm that we're living in, for the narrative, because we're going to be changing it as we go along. Because, you know, three years, so uh, the mother weffers are, are fading over the next three years. We get to a, uh, a point where all of the school curriculums are, are basically in upheaval. Uh, we're doing things like, you know, hard math and uh, language skills and, and technology and everything else in the way of, uh, you know, history, social sciences, psychiatry, all of this is... Um, uh, open to interpretation and is in a great deal of upheaval, especially in the area of history. So, you know, all of the history teachers in um, high schools and stuff here in the United States are going to go fucking batshit because everything they're teaching is bogus. Mostly they're all teaching gender studies now anyway, which we're going to just throw out. Nobody's going to be doing gender studies. Uh, in fact, uh, Switzerland just uh, made it a law that says there's only two genders and if you try and teach any other stuff... Uh, we're going to get really nasty on you. Uh, and we need such a law, right? That that if you try and teach bogus information, and it, uh, we're going to just get on your case about it, uh, <laughs> simply because it's bogus and you're attempting to um, uh, disrupt and, um, and harm the social order by teaching this stuff. Now, I don't want to have official... Um, curriculums, I don't want to have officialdom in any way restrict what is what is taught. But I also want officialdom out of the business of uh, certifying information. So, in my opinion, if anytime you shade into credentialism, such as saying, I graduated as a historian from yuckety, yuckety, yuckety university, 
and I am a historian with a master's or a PhD, and I know the history, and you must trust me because I'm an expert. All right, so that whole credentialism, trust the expert stuff, always, always leads to corruption. And so I want to have an education system where credentialism is not allowed, but proof is. And if you can demonstrate it, you'll get people to follow you that will accept what you're saying and you won't have any problems whether or not you are credentialed, right? And so my uh, personal saving grace is I don't have any fucking credentials at all. <laughs> and, you know, I've never been credentialed by anybody. Even in Aikido, I refused to test. So I have only a white belt in Aikido, even though I've been doing it for 30 years, and I've got a Shihonagi that will break the arm off of a black belt, uh, even at my advanced age. Um, I've got a Shihonagi that I could easily kill people. Uh, Shihonagi is a, the four-direction throw in Aikido. Uh, it actually had to be altered four different times after the end of uh, World War II when Aikido was just taking off in Japan because it was not a... Uh, pre-war martial art and so all the pre-war martial arts were forbidden uh, but the um, it was a new martial art and so it was taking off and the shihonagi was actually killing the people that were participating and, and it's a very deadly move and a lot of the people were were receiving the shihonagi not landing correctly and then they would die several hours later because of injuries that had occurred to the back part of their brain and the uh, spinal column and the brain stem uh, as I say, it's a very, very deadly kind of a, a particular uh, joint lock and throw. In any event, though, so um, it, it too is a technology. And so, and so if we look at all of our technologies, and especially examine how uh, humans interact with our technologies and what technologies we want and those that we're trying to um, uh, acquire and, and so on, um, we see, I see anyway, within our species... A, a seeking for these things. I don't know if it's a lack, okay? Um, but uh, this seeking, in my opinion, does not necessarily lead to the collapse of civilization just because we encounter space aliens. So I'm not worried about encountering space aliens with a, quote, superior culture and superior technology. I'm not going to think badly of humans because I, I do encounter these beings. I'm going to take their technology, I'm going to, you know, what do the, the Marines say? I'm going to uh, improvise, adapt, overcome, and victory, you know? Uh, so so what if I have to steal it? <laughs> so what if I have to steal my floaty RV? As soon as I steal it, I'm going to learn how it works, and then I'll be able to replicate it. Um, and thereafter, I'll make inventions that the people that made it wouldn't have thought of. Uh, simply because that's the nature of creativity in humans, and, and it's just something we do. So, I'm actually looking forward to these encounters. I don't fear this, uh, I don't have, you know, space alien phobia. Um, I don't fear these guys showing up. It's going to be extremely disruptive to a lot of normies, and it may indeed break things like many, many, many religions. And I don't have a religion, so I'm not in particularly a uh, distressed by, by this. I, I don't have anything at risk there. Uh, although, it need not, in my opinion, uh, even disturb faith or um, uh, identification with or, or whatever, uh, association with, fellowship with uh, the Creator um, 
for humanity, right? Just because we encounter these other beings who are also have been created, who also have been uh, created by the same uh, uh, divinity that has created all of the stuff that we're seeing here now, that are also, in a way of, of saying it, also expressions of the universal consciousness. And it may be that they're nice guys, it may be that they're, you know, uh, fucktards, like we find a lot of humans. Uh, that's immaterial. That's that's a secondary issue to, to this kind of thing, is our interpersonal relationships with them. Now, uh, I think this is pertinent because we have... Uh, I don't know if it's disinformation, I don't know how factual it is, the uh, government here in uh, uh, the World Economic Forum government on planet Earth has a tendency to um, obscure so much stuff that uh, we can't make, a lot, of, a lot of areas we can't make accurate conclusions because of the uh, obscuring of so much in the, of the basically the raw data that would allow us to uh, effectively form conclusions, right? Um, but there are rumors, hints, that our government is like the United States um, WEF-managed, World Economic Forum-managed, uh, military-industrial, uh, or military-intelligence complex, okay, which includes and has subsumed the corporations uh, into it. Uh, so Twitter, all of these guys are part of government now. But what people don't understand is government is not run by the politicians. It's run by the intelligence services. And um, uh, our government, run by these intelligence services, at this moment is and has for some time been expecting something in the way of a uh, space alien interaction with humanity. And they have very particular expectations. Uh, you can track some of it down. I can point out some of it uh, in other areas, but we'll never get to any kind of definitive understanding of what they expect because they're, they're trying to keep it from us. And because they are trying to keep it from us, um, I think that they are of the opinion that there is some potential there for this um, clash of the culture business, right? But I also think that they're looking at this badly, that they're not seeing this in an appropriate uh, fashion because we've already had first contact. We're already, um, uh, you know, uh, critters that are uh, dealing with the cultural implications of first contact or of contact with space aliens. And we just need to acknowledge that and, and sort of like maybe formalize it to some extent, and then we can get on with uh, that interaction and what it will mean to us. So, interesting times. All right, guys, got to go. Got to get into a meeting here, so uh, probably more on this later. It's a fascinating subject, and there's a lot of us that are really thinking about it now because we see that the government is also uh, doing things to... Um, suggest our minds that they're also thinking about it.